welcome to Buy Positive. These are your hosts, Mari and Andy. And we're finally back. Sorry for the hold up, folks, uh, but we've been pretty busy in our preparation to go to Clexicon this year in Las Vegas. We'll be there next week. Yeah, next week. Next week, we're, we'll be talking on three different panels. One where we talk about how to find proper healthcare for the LGBTQ population, one on bi plus representation, and one of our own making together with a wonderful Nicole Payson, who will be talking to us about uh, using queer narratives in narrative therapy. That's going to be exciting. So if you're going to be there, be sure to stop by and say hi. We would love to talk to you and uh, see you if you listen to us in the U.S. or if you actually come to Lexicon from overseas. Mm -hmm. And today we would like to direct your attention to a topic that I think a lot of bisexual people and bi-plus people struggle with. Actually, queer people Queer in people in general struggle with, and that's this idea of imposter syndrome. But what is imposter syndrome? <laughs> it actually uh, is a real thing that has nothing to do with sexual orientation originally. Well, I'll answer that question for you. Imposter <laughs> syndrome, also called imposter phenomenon, fraud syndrome, imposter experience was originally discovered or introduced in the 70s in research about high-achieving women. So there's this idea that high-achieving women think that they just got lucky, right? And that they're afraid of being exposed as frauds. And later, of course, the term was translated across genders, not just women, but also men, although prevalence is higher in women. It's just this idea of, you know, I didn't do anything to get here, basically. And, and I don't deserve to and be I here. And I don't deserve to be here. And also, I'm what I'm what I am is a fake. Basically, I'm not good enough for the job that I'm doing. Or yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a fraud, and something is go- something or someone is going to uncover it eventually. Yeah, which causes anxiety and depression and other mental health issues. The term was first coined by doctors Pauline Clance and Suzanne Ines in this study about high achieving women. Later, they kind of delineated a whole. Um, structure of a cycle Mm -hmm. of imposter syndrome and also kind of signs of imposter syndrome as well as furthering their studies across other populations in terms of minorities, racial Mm -hmm. minorities. We would like to kind of expand this idea towards sexuality. I mean, we're not the only one doing it. Clearly. Uh, You can see in the media some news articles or people saying that they are experiencing an imposter syndrome when it comes to their sexuality. Before we actually dive into the theory of it, I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of imposter syndrome in bisexuals. And all, of, all the stuff we'll be talking about here is kind of anecdotal. There's not that much research about it, not that we found anyways. Mm-hmm. But so far, we have seen a lot on social media, and I think in ourselves a little bit, mm-hmm. this, this, this constant idea of, Okay, what if I'm not bi? What if I'm just gay? What if I'm faking it? Or, or what if I'm straight. straight? Yeah, and I'm just experimenting. Or I'm, I'm straight and I'm just... Because, you know, someone in a, in a relationship, in a straight-passing relationship, that, okay, I'm actually straight and I just have these ideas in my head that I'm straight. Or what if I'm queer just to make myself look more interesting? Yeah. Because there's also a lot of discourse of, like, you know, being trans is fashionable, so your kid is just doing it to be... To be popular, whatever. <laughs> yeah, in the queer community, it's something that comes up a lot. A lot are also in therapy, people who are afraid to express sort of their past or trauma because they think that they lose it. It's a lot the the hurt and 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 those experience. If they actually process it, process them, work on them, they are not going to be queer anymore. 
Mm. This idea that being queer is rooted in suffering, which in the end makes it the idea that if you don't suffer, this is not a reason for you to be queer, you're not queer. It's nothing but imposter syndrome, actually. Yeah. And I think the same can be said for other minority populations, you know, racial populations. There's this idea of, you know, like being white on the inside and black on the outside also. Yeah. Um, and all those other things where you kind of just don't feel at home with your community because you feel like you're not enough like them. Yeah. And or, you, then, or you haven't struggled like them. And you would find that more in people of mixed ethnicity. Yeah. As, I mean, in a way, you will find someone who's not monosexual because uh, you can pass as one or the other. And, you know, I mean, by erasure tends to uh, put us into another category of either straight or gay. And I would say a lot of it comes from the outside as well. As you said, you know, people categorizing us and kind of trying to pigeonhole us into one box or the other when it's neither. This, when you're constantly being told that you have to pick a side, you eventually start to think that way as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you start believing that if you don't fit into a side, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Or you're just being stupid. You're just being, yeah, just just calling for attention yeah. by not picking one, which is super hurtful, incredibly detrimental to mental health. I think a lot can also be said towards like more non-binary, agender people as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of also, you know, pick a side type of discourse. But so, what what is imposter syndrome? What does the cycle look like? In the actual imposter syndrome, in like the one as it was described uh, by Clance, the idea is that the person will uh, receive a task to do, an achievement-related task, and which will provoke anxiety, self-doubt, worry. And there are two types of reaction. One will be over-preparation, over-achiever, we're going to overdo it. And the other type will be procrastination. You know, mm-hmm. the fear of failure and I'm avoiding, but they will actually do it last minute, but they will do it. Mm-hmm. And the fact is both actually managed to do it. There's an accomplishment, there's a feeling of relief, and they have positive feedback. But because of the pattern they follow, they, both sides discount the positive feedback. Because the people who went for the over-preparation route they say, oh, no, it's because I made so much effort. It's because of my effort that I had good results. It's not because I'm good enough. It's not because I'm competent. It's not because I'm good at my job. It's just because I work more than others. Mm. And the procrastinators are just going to think it's luck. That, eh, no, I did well, but I've, honestly, I just winged it and I got super lucky that it worked. Mm. And one day someone is going to uncover and discover that I am a fraud and I actually don't know what I'm doing. But truth is, whether you're an over um, preparator or procrastinator, if you manage to do it, it's because you can do it and you're actually good at your job. Because the one thing is that in the like uh, imposter syndrome, in in like the clinical uh, and um, academic uh, sense of the term, people who have this syndrome are are actually very successful. They have great results and they are generally very very good at what they do. The problem is, I told you that they they have positive feedback. But they discount the positive feedback. And therefore, there's an increase in their self-doubt, depressive or anxiety, depressive symptoms or anxiety. That makes them more nervous when they have another task to accomplish and we go back to the cycle. And it's um, it's a never-ending cycle that can just break when it's too much and you have a full-fledged depression or a 
the anxiety becomes crippling. And then it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy of having actually been discovered at the fraud because you collapse under your own the weight you put yourself on your shoulders. Yeah, I mean, I can say that uh, work a lot of, with students lately. <laughs> and uh, definitely I've seen two kinds of people, you know, the kind that overwork and feel super anxious and then they feel that they have to keep up this, you know, bone-breaking amount of work just to maintain the whatever A, 5, mm -hmm. 10 out of mm -hmm. 10, whatever mm -hmm. your system is. But there's also a big category of people who are just naturally, I wouldn't say good at studying, but good at understanding and who believe that because the educational system is so competitive mm -hmm. and they see everybody else struggle so much that they have to struggle just as much. And just the fact that they understand things faster, they know more things, they might be a little bit, yeah, a little bit smarter um, in the traditional yeah. IQ sense. They just process faster. Yeah, they process faster. And that makes them feel like crap. Because instead of, you know, instead of seeing that as something, you know, as something positive, as a merit to their work and something that can help them get mm -hmm. further in life, they see it as just sheer dumb luck. Yeah. And there's kind of a belief that one day this luck will break. Is that the thing with imposter syndrome is that people who have it mm. are generally very much qualified for what they do. People who are way too confident in their abilities, generally don't have the abilities. <laughs> no, but, I mean, that's not true. Some people are actually healthily confident. It happens. Yes, it happens. After years of therapy. Yeah, but it's possible. And also I think that, that, that the thing when... That it may be a bit different when it comes to sexual orientation. Because mm. if we so transpose that idea of imposter syndrome to bisexuality specifically... The problem will be, okay, I'm not bi enough. Am I really bi? Am I a fraud? Am I actually gay? Am I actually straight? Am I actually nothing? Mm. You know, all of those uh, interrogations you can have at different moments of your life. The slight difficulties that sometimes you need to question your identity because it's actually evolving, or yes, it happens that sometimes bisexuality is just a phase towards acceptance as gay or lesbian. But in that case... There's generally an end to the cycle. And if the cycle keeps repeating, is that you are very certainly bisexual yeah. or pan um, and bi plus. And it's very interesting to see that as in the, you know, imposter syndrome, like the textbook imposter syndrome, you have overachiever, the overpreparator, and the procrastinator. You could say that when it comes to sexual identity, you have on the one hand people who are going to be avoiding of their identity. That's a little bit of my pet peeve, but the whole thing, oh, I don't need any level, I'm completely confident with who I am without, being, without having done any work on it. Mm. Again, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's very rarely possible without having done any work because we all have internalized stigma, whether or not we want to admit it. Uh, so like we said, like the avoiders. And then we have the overachiever as well, the uh, super activist, the uh, walking stereotype, even though it's difficult to be a walking stereotype of a bi person, mm. and the person who is going to completely overdo it and tell to everyone that they're bi, even if it's actually not needed in the situation. And I think both of these things, you know, both the academic and work um, imposter syndrome and minority imposter syndrome, if that's something we can mm -hmm. call it, all those things, they come from, from, first of all, this idea of categorization, which we discussed in a previous mm -hmm. episode, 
this idea that you have to fit into a box and to fit into a box you need to meet a certain set of criteria when in reality you know we did an episode our first episode on this podcast was debunking myths about bisexuality debunking those stereotypes they might be true for some people there's a reason why they're stereotypes but for a lot of people they're nonsense and to have to meet those stereotypes just to put the label on yourself it kind of takes away from the whole human experience and secondly of course there's also this idea of competition of course in work and and university or, or school settings those are much more apparent you know you have to not only be better than your colleagues but there's this almost cultural idea it is a cultural idea that you always have to be better faster stronger yeah. you always have to overachieve if you haven't stayed at work until 10 p.m then you've, you've done nothing you know and it's super detrimental not only because people burn out but also because they keep thinking that this is the way to work when in reality it's been proven actually that four day work weeks are so much better also they are staying behind there are many ways to work and we don't all work in the same way yeah it's the competition part of it is more is less i would say not so much there are some things that i've observed in the queer community that mm -hmm. have rubbed me the wrong way mm -hmm. this kind of idea of oppression olympics yeah that you kind of have to like you said you have to yeah, suffer to true. be a queer person and so like some people yeah they overdo it with activism I'm not saying activism is bad, oh, but no. also... It's very needed. It's very needed, but also when it takes away time from your family, when it takes away time from your actual work, when it takes away time that you could spend on... Yeah, exactly, on developing yourself and on caring for yourself. If your entire life is just the activist... If being an activist, you're going to burn out yeah. because of activism, it's maybe that the balance is not... Great, because activism should improve our condition, not make things worse. Yeah. And the second part is, is like I've said, you know, this, this idea is that you have to be a sufferer to, to be queer. You mm -hmm. have to have lived through your parents kicking you out and religious heavens on your back yeah. and God knows what else. You know, it's, it's come to a point where sexuality and gender identity are becoming more and more of a competition. It's a tendency that I've seen grow, especially online in the past couple of years, that has been feeding into this idea of, okay, well, these people are doing so much. You know, they're out there marching, they're out there doing their thing, and here I am, not doing a single thing for the community. Can I even allow myself to use the label if I'm not doing anything for the community? Perhaps you're not doing anything because you are just in a dire situation and you can't come out. Perhaps you're not doing it because you have disabilities that don't allow you to be out there with a banner. There are so many things that play also into... Because maybe you're an introvert and you're very uneasy in crowds. Yeah, that too. You know, there are so many things that could prevent a person from being an activist. Activism is not for everyone. It's definitely not for a lot of people that I know. And when those people try to achieve those high standards of, of being... Everything at the same time. Everything at the same time, they just burn out. And they become a shell of a person that is only propped up by their, their identity, the boxes that they're trying to fill. As you said, I think it's also another dimension of that bi-plus imposter syndrome mm. is the identity part of it. It's the category you also, I mean, you don't necessarily need the identity when it comes to, you know, your workplace. Here we know that we need a strong queer identity because it's one of the things that protects us from uh, social stigma, from the actual hurdles that we face, whether they are big or 
not that big, mm. but still there. The thing is, it will, in my opinion, increase that syndrome because you're going to try and do more and you need to have an identity. So you have this pressure of actually having the identity and belonging. So it would also go towards that direction of overdoing it to make sure that you belong, to make sure that no one is going to doubt you. I would definitely say that I've seen that also happen to to gender minorities. Mm-hmm. You know, either either people who are in the process of transition or people who don't fit into the binary categories. When I have clients come in telling me, you know, I don't really want the surgery, but I still want to be called a certain mm-hmm. label, they don't feel like they can be called that label just because of what's between their legs. And there's this pressure of, okay, I have to I have to have multiple surgeries that will potentially, you know, change my life forever that and might harm. go wrong. And cause harm. And cause harm and might go wrong. You never know what's going to happen on the operating table, which I'm not comfortable with, but I'm still going to do it because that's what people say I have to be in order to be called a trans man or a trans woman. Yeah. Which is super scary when you think about it. It's It's kind of the worst form of peer pressure that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, and it's both a pressure here from the queer community and from the straight community because yeah. you need to conform to the social norms plus the norms of the community. Yeah. Which is also kind of a situation for bi-plus people. It's hurtful and makes things more complicated and it will uh, increase the likelihood of an imposter syndrome of feeling that you are a fraud. But actually you aren't a lot at all. You're not a fraud at all. But you just feel like that. And because you feel like a fraud, you end up developing mental health issues. On top of the ones that you've already had because stigma. And so. Stigma, actual trauma, uh, trauma with a big T, uh, trauma with a small T, because you, a lot of things that are hard to cope with, mm. um, really, really hard, like the hardest things that can happen in life, but also things that might seem more menial, but are actually difficult, very difficult to deal with. So how do you solve a problem like imposter syndrome? Well, there's a result in a study that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a little bit old, it's studies that's 10 years old, mm-hmm. 2009, but found that lesbians have lower imposter syndromes than other women. So the selection is lesbians? And, I mean, I'm saying <laughs> straight women, heterosexual yeah. women, because of course they had two categories, heterosexual and lesbians, because, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> by Eurasia. Uh, it would be also interesting to, to do the, the, the that kind of study uh, trans women versus uh, cis women or non-binary or non-gender confirming women mm-hmm. um, female aligned. That would be very interesting to use a gender viable mm-hmm. but just like to keep things simple at least to uh, use the results of that uh, one study so we know that lesbians have less imposter syndrome, like actual imposter syndrome. I'm talking about the one, the workplace one, mm-hmm. as it was originally defined. Why? It seems that it's because they actually have already deconstructed gender norms, because they don't need, they don't have the need to follow them. It turns out that imposter syndromes in women is very much rooted in gender norms, mm-hmm. like I'm say patriarchal gender norms which in the end, and that's actually the reason why we think women have higher imposter syndromes, even though men experience it as well. But in the end, it's still the idea that, you know, women don't belong in the workplace. Or women will never be as good as men. And also, if you're also working, you're not a good mother, which can lead to an imposter syndrome 
uh, in your role as a mother mm-hmm. or a wife, whatever that can mean, but it exists. So lesbians seems to be protected against imposter syndrome compared to heterosexual women because they knew how they had to deconstruct the gender norms. They also live in a way that the just gender, traditional gender norms are uh, less prominent. So I think the answer is there, is again about deconstructing hmm. on norms or internalized beliefs uh, or expectations and just maybe listen to what the person really feels. And when it comes to being bi-plus, it's, you don't have to be equally attracted to men and women and other gender. Uh, you don't have to actually have mutual, multiple partners. You don't have to be poly. You don't have to have experience with uh, all genders. You don't have to... No. If you are with actually one partner, you've uh, met someone, you're monogamous, you met someone early on in life and you've been with them and only with them, if you know that your attractions are not just to the gender of your partner, you can, you are bi plus. It's completely valid. It's those expectations we need to deconstruct. I think, I mean, it kind of plays into a lot of what we do with our clients across so many different things, sexuality, gender, mm-hmm. performance, anxiety, depression. There is no one right way to be yourself, okay? There is not one way to be depressed. There is not one way to be anxious. There is not one way to be bi. There is not one way to be a woman. There is not one way to be a man. There is not one way to be anyone. It all boils down to your own experience. And I always say that even though your truth is subjective and everyone's truth is subjective, it is your truth. So what I'm working with is what you have experienced, not with what others tell you you are experiencing. And what you've experienced and what makes sense to you. What resonates with you? And if the bi-plus label resonates with you, then it's your label. Hmm. And that's it, period. You don't need anything more. Because it's about you and your identity in the end. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely terrible that you need to conform and do things as it is expected. It happens to me very recently to have a, a client who are doing visualization exercises, hmm. things that were to help, to help them deal with some symptoms. No, I ask them to practice between sessions and they came back and said, yeah, I did it a bit differently though, it changed. Mm-hmm. And they were super, maybe not anxious, but at least Distressed. very, very embarrassed mm. that they didn't do it exactly as we had rehearsed in session. Mm. I was like, I had to tell them that, no, it's to help you, you do what helps you. Yeah, We can discuss it if you have doubts, but the idea is for you to find something that actually helps you. Yeah. That reduces your symptoms. And I think, again, it has to do with the fact that we all function differently. And yes, we have categories, we have stereotypes. Those are just things that exist in our head to make life simpler for us, neurobiologically speaking. Please refer to our previous episodes. <laughs> but other than that, your ex- experience is uniquely your own. We can't help but choose categories. But we can choose how, which categories we use. And we can understand that they're just that categories. So, what has been your experience of imposter syndrome? Have you experienced it across gender, sexuality in your workplace? What is your experience as a queer person in a workplace? Because we haven't really talked about that as much. We talked about the research, but that research is kind of old as far as psychological research goes. So if you'd like to share something, please do write to us on our Twitter or send us an email and if you're going to be in Vegas for Klexicon between the 11th and the 14th 15th 15th whatever it's like a long party (laughs) if you're gonna be there please stop by and say hi to us stop by 
get it. Anyways, uh, we will be back in two weeks with an episode. We will have hopefully recorded a Klexicon, and we will talk to you in those two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thank you.